Three, two, one, Mark. Okay, let's do that again. <laughs> Three. I, I just made a mouth sound. <laughs> Mwah. <laughs> what kind of person to say a toad is so? You know what? A toad is so. A fucking a toad is so. I think the kind I'm figuring out actually the kind of bands that I like, like the kind of bands that play actual music that has like instruments and whatever that I like. I'm sort of I'm doing the math on it a little bit. Uh, Okay. Because I've been riding my bike a lot more, and because it's autumn, I don't want to listen to. I I I feel like I really like listening to techno in the summer, in the winter, and the spring. Autumn has a different vibe for me. I want to listen to something a bit different in the autumn. I'm wearing a sweater. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm cycling around. I can see my breath. And so I'm listening yep. to more music with instruments in it. Um, okay. Okay. What kind of instruments are we talking like fall, fall instruments, like accordion, uh, auto harp, <laughs> yeah. um, flute? Yes. I'm listening to German oaf music. <laughs> I'm listening to an oompa band. My autumnal, my autumnal strains. Uh, yeah. Oktoberfest. That's it. <laughs> to be fair, Oktoberfest is pretty fun. Like Schlager music is a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. Well, I can see why Schlager music would appeal to you too, because it has this, <laughs> this certain similarity uh, rhythmically with uh, some of your faves. You know <laughs> what? Like Wahnsinn. Warum suchst du mich me hola 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 hola? Oh yeah, it's 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 a I can't, I can't remember. I sort of vaguely know the sound that you're supposed to make when you're singing along in the tent. Uh, yeah, when you're yeah. this there and Schutzen uh, trying to stand on the table, but you've been there since seven in the morning. This is more of a rock talk anecdote, but um, I'll just briefly, uh, a couple of years ago, Wolf Parade got invited to uh, an amazing festival uh, called Sea Weissenfest in uh, rural Austria. Okay. Um, in the nestled uh, between some beautiful mountains, possibly Alps, possibly Austrian Alps, this just uh, gingerbread village. And um, we were playing in a tent by a river. And the band that went on before us was the most German thing I have ever seen in my life. Okay. It was uh, maybe eight very tall, very wide men in Lederhosen um, playing a mixture of Schlager, Ska, and like no effect style punk. How? And the kid, the kids were losing their goddamn minds. And th- this was not a racist band. Mm-hmm. They were, uh, they were anti-fascist, but uh, anti boy, anti-fascist dorks. Yes. It seems just, like uh, just classic German oafs. The kind of German oafs you don't really see around here very much. Mm. Well, yeah, because all of our German oafs kind of got got radicalized, whereas they're still very much in the cream puff zone over there. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. There, there's a, there's a like a time field around the German oaf population there, <laughs> forever stuck. I'm in Toronto, where like the the, the German oafishness has been diluted by flinty Scotsmen. So yeah, you're you're there in downtown Canada, where the the noble oaf toils under the under the watchful glare of the angular Scot. Man, I went to the fucking Eaton Center downtown Canada today. Oh, did you go to the Abercrombie? I walked by it and 
bad vibes, bad vibes all around. Every store is desperate to let you know that shopping is indeed back and mm. that you should do a lot of it. Let's because- get these malls back up to their pre-pandemic footfall numbers. And by pre-pandemic, <laughs> we mean 2003. Exactly, man. Yeah, the, the heyday of Riley's school taking a school trip to Toronto to go see like Wicked or whatever, and then giving you an hour and a half in the Eaton Center. That was yes. like that was the premium time because that's when you go get your Hollister stuff for the rest of the year. Oh hell yeah! Right, and that and that had to last you. You know, that's right. So you got your I'm one like- your one shirt that says like you know uh, Hollister Surf Wax and Beach Hut. That you would then, you know, wear while trudging through this sort of slosh in, in just disgusting, wintry St. Catharines. <laughs> I mean, it, there's nothing more Canadian than, like, wearing a puka shell necklace in the driving sleet in St. Catharines. I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was me wearing uh, L.A. gear in, uh, like, the three-month-long torrential downpour that they call winter on Vancouver Island. <laughs> oh, my. All right. Look, we, have, we have some Canada to talk. I mean, I mean, we have some Canada to talk about. I'm interested to know a little before we jump into it, though, and uh, how yeah. you've been enjoying your time in downtown Canada. So, currently, out the window, and I know this is an audio format, um, uh, slice of delicious content so the viewers cannot see this so I will try and describe it with words if I turn my head just slightly to the left and I angle it up at say 35 degrees mm-hmm. blaring down at me like the fucking eye of Sauron is the CBC logo mm-hmm. and then if I turn my head a little bit uh, I see the CN Tower mm-hmm. so I'm 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 on top of the ley lines of uh, Canadian soft power right now <laughs> And I had a really bizarre experience this morning reading a CBC article that annoyed me and, you know, just kind of ooh, clenching my fist a little bit. Oh, CBC. And then looking out the window and being like, I could literally just write um, a response to this instead of tweeting, tape it to a rock and probably throw it through the window of the editor. Greetings. <laughs> I hope this rock finds you well. <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, all right. So. It's uh, it's the bottleman. It's Riley and Dan. We're talking a little bit uh, about a little more Canadian stuff. We have the, the, Dan. You've been you've been developing some opinions um, about uh, uh, the, the doings that have been transpiring, especially in terms of uh, foreign policy uh, yeah, yeah. regarding uh, uh, Canada. So I think we're going to talk about that for a little while. And also, uh, boy. Boy, is is there an article that's come up in the Globe and Mail? <laughs> um, well, yeah. So I lo- I love to drive myself insane by um, not necessarily watching C- Canadian foreign policy per se. That's not the thing that drives me most insane. What drives me most insane is watching um, our uh, media mm-hmm. uh, facilitate like sort of a one way public. Uh, I mean, I I, mean, I know there's a word for it. Maybe it's propaganda. Uh, well, no, we don't do that kind of thing. Yeah, that's like no, we 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 work against places that do propaganda, and we helpfully remind people that that's what we're doing. So, okay, so let's we don't do propaganda. Let's call it a one way conversation with the public. Uh, how about um, uh, how about instead instead of propaganda, uh, you know, which is n- not that nice. What if uh, we it's uh, good communication, something like this. Yeah, yeah. Fa- uh, news you can use. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Right. Um, 
One thing I have been noticing is that the 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 sort of tone and tenor of um, the people who are um, trying to push various narratives has has been subtly changing over the last couple of uh, the last couple of years. Really, during the pandemic, um, it it is kind of soured. Um, and I, w- I want to talk about this article uh, that CTV ran mm-hmm. uh, about uh, Canada Taiwan relations. So a few days ago, they ran an explainer on. Um, on Canada-Taiwan relations using, as far as I can tell, a single source. And, oh, I mean, um, well, that's efficient. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It saves you doing stuff like checking facts or uh, trying to synthesize, like, an opinion of your own. Mm-hmm. Um, you really, as a journalist, what you, <laughs> you want to do is you want to contact a source and then you make yourself invisible and allow them to sort of like a fire hose shoot information through you at the... Uh, out uh, at the, uh, you know, newspaper or television station that you're employed by. Yeah, because, you know, the fire of unreason is burning and you yes. need to quench it with the water of helpful information. Exactly. You know, it's what so, it is. It's, it's a lot. A lot of Canadian places seem to do this. It's the uh, Errol Morris technique of uh, uh, of, of, of journalism. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you remove yourself from the scene. Um, so the, so the water of, uh, the cool quenching water of reason in this case was Taipei based senior fellow at the Victoria, uh, McDonald Laurier Institute mm-hmm. and, uh, also fellow at the global Taiwan Institute, J. Michael Cole. And okay. in this case, he was, uh, he was talking about the Arle Burke class guided missile destroyer, the USS Dewey that sailed through the Taiwan Strait mm-hmm. and was accompanied by Canadian frigate HMCS Winnipeg. Hey, there we are, mattering. We're we accompanying. <laughs> We're on the global stage. Yeah. Look, we couldn't just sail that frigate through ourselves. And if the U.S. wasn't there to give us something to accompany. We're the little guy uh, following the, the big bully um, saying he's going to kick your ass. <laughs> um, so obviously, like the Chinese military condemned this action, but. But for coal and and this very small group of people in Canada who want to light the fuse on Cold War 2.0, and more importantly, whose livelihoods depend on producing results for the countries that pay them to uh, crank out commentary and analysis, mm-hmm. uh, this was very very exciting for these guys. Of course. Um, so here's here's Cole on on this uh, international incident. Okay. He, he says it was uh, it certainly was intentional. That is a way for Canada to demonstrate that it is also willing to play a role in this fledgling coalition of democracies, that it is increasingly active in this part of the world, and as a way to stabilize things and to signal to China that belligerent behavior would have consequences and repercussions. Yeah, like lucrative jobs for me and my friends at exactly. uh, fake think tanks. Yeah. You know, we, we need to make sure that we stay as belligerent as possible. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, there's no better way to teach somebody a lesson about uh, belligerent behavior than sailing like a cruise missile armed warship. I mean, uh, it's it's so it's so fucked that just like it seems that the the people who actually do have just a stranglehold on credibility in our media for whatever reason think that the best way to sort of manage uh, ma- to manage relationships with the uh, just world's producer of last resort, right? Is to be, yeah. do a version, an, a, ver- a naval version of "I'm not touching you." Uh, exactly, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why are you hitting yourself, etc.? Hey, stop, stop sailing the our, our ships through your territorial waters. 
<laughs> it's uh yeah, it's a classic case of I know you are, but what am I? Um, <laughs> uh, I'm rubber, so, and you're a, a cruise missile carrier accompanied by an insignificant frigate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so Cole uh, Cole said that the recent increased frequency of China o- Chinese overflights in Taiwan's uh, ADIZ advances several objectives. He says. This is Cole's opinion. Uh, This is part of efforts by Chinese to familiarize themselves with the sea lanes near and around Taiwan and perhaps one day use force against it. Mm -hmm. This is psychological warfare against the Taiwanese to reinforce intimidation and signal to the international community that China will not be dictated to countries like the U.S., which is kind of funny because I don't really think the Chinese military needs to fucking familiarize itself with uh, with the Taiwan Strait. Yeah, well, if, Just, if, if the Chinese military familiarizes itself with any anywhere around China, then that's a problem. You know, it's a problem yeah. that they're... And, I mean, look, it's... I, I don't want to go on here and be like, uh, you know, no, no, no country can do no wrong. It's just states yeah, are exactly. states. They act like states. And we seem aghast anytime anyone else assumes we're going to... Or more accurately, our big friend is going to act like one. And so we have to do this weird chest puffery where every time we like, I don't know, send a cigarette boat <laughs> up through <laughs> uh, uh, up, up through like, you know, Hong Kong Harbor or whatever. We have to then make a whole hue and cry about it in the national papers, because that's how people in Canada know that Canada matters and has a foreign policy, except that it doesn't because our foreign policy is just to be good. Yeah. Exactly. And I think I think as as we read through, like this is kind of what is the, what is emerging in this class of people is that there are very th- these people are realizing that we do not have a foreign policy and they're very angry about it. Mm-hmm. OK, um, so, you know, there's there's a reason that you're hearing more and more about Taiwan and uh, the Indo-Pacific region and maybe less about, uh, let's say, Hong Kong, mm-hmm. for instance. And it's the same reason that you might have heard so much about Latvia here after 2016. <laughs> um, in fact, it's exactly the same reason, because up until 2017, uh, the McDonald Laurier Institute didn't really have any opinion on Taiwan because no one was paying them to have one. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the last few years, uh, the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office in Canada, which is there, which is Taiwan's de facto embassy here, yeah, of course. Has, been, has been sponsoring the MLI. So the content hose has been turned on, uh, aimed at the public, and set to uh, KMT awareness. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, I mean, and of course, it's like, it's like, yeah, it's 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 again one of these things of like of just the whole point of being like a right, like if being a a right wing foreign policy think tank in America or Canada is just like arguing which country we have to like which other place in the world do we have to like throw just a bunch of like young people and like an infinite amount of money into like a meat grinder for um for for their sake right which country are we going to decide that is going to be the the sort of recipient of of our largesse so that we can have a war yeah yeah exactly and and again you know i gotta reiterate like it's pretty rich coming from a, a you know a network of uh, self-described analysts and uh, you know people who get interviewed I, I by our know, national. Are you, are you do you do you remember there was an article a few months ago that sort of like, the, like is all of these people have like learned grad school language now 
Yes. So yes. I remember I remember reading I just found it again. I remember reading this um uh and just becoming uh momentarily furious. It's uh by noted idiot J Michael Cole. Um and he says time and again in academic works, newspaper articles and public comments, the dispute in the Taiwan Strait, which stems from Beijing's long-standing claims of sovereignty over Taiwan, has been referred to as the Taiwan question or alternatively the Taiwan issue. Whether by design or intellectual sloppiness, this designation of Taiwan is reductionist, a construct that presupposes conclusions and frames the complex dispute in ways that benefit China. By referring to the matter as a question or an issue, Taiwan and its people become dehumanized. And this is the next sentence that caused me to, um, let's say, become furious. This kind of dehumanization has a long and dangerous history. In Canada, the Indian question was shorthand for discussing the assimilation, territorial conquest of, and cultural erasure of indigenous peoples. Yeah. So, but, yeah. Yeah, that, you know what? When be careful how you talk about Taiwan, because otherwise, according to the Martin, the the McDonald Laurie Institute, I almost said the Martin Lawrence Institute, which I think would be <laughs> a lot, a lot. According to the Martin Lawrence Institute, uh, according to the Martin Short Institute. Yeah. You're you're uh, basically doing residential schools uh, when you, t- which is especially for the fucking MLI is it, it, disgusting. It's it, it's also why like all of this, um, all of this uh, sort of uh, you know um, all this grad school talk right is just so p- fucking useless because all of this stuff about like uh, about oh you're you're depersonalizing Taiwan or whatever it's you're not creating bodies and spaces for Taiwan in the Formosa Sea or whatever um what you it's it could just be used by anyone for any reason absolutely they can bolt it on and and this is a this is like a common thing that you're seeing like oh by the saying, way he then says this is also like the Jewish question it is absolutely not. yeah Come on. you fucking asshole <laughs> i mean this is so- this is this is why like it's a good thing that nobody reads the McDonald Laurier Institute except yeah. us. Well, that's the thing. So no one reads the stuff that they produce. But the problem is, is that our national broadcaster, uh, broadcasters like CTV, and of course, the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Sun and the National Post and everything like maybe your parents read or your your uncle reads, um, they're going to get a full uh a full unshielded dose of j michael cole you know what it is you know? it's that the martin lawrence institute is like nico in the velvet underground like no one list reads their articles but everyone who reads their articles goes on to write an article that's right that's absolutely right just spawning uh tons and tons of mini j michael coles popping up all over peterborough st Catharines. um <laughs> So, oh, I'm the St. Catherine's J. Michael Cole. That pretty, I, I, I do like I'm, I'm the St. Catherine's standards resident foreign policy hawk. You're getting wedged and shoved into a locker. Is the St. Catherine's standards? It is. It is still on uh, the, the newspaper from my hometown, Niagara in the Lake, uh, no longer exists. The Niagara Advance out of print. Out of print. Out of print, I'm afraid. It's too bad. Uh, but no, um, please carry on. So I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, who this is, like just briefly. You got to know, you know. Uh, sorry, I'll take that again. I want to talk. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, who is J. Michael Cole, mm-hmm. and uh, J. Michael Cole is a geopolitical consultant for the Taiwanese government. Okay, <laughs> and, Fine. and he also yeah, he also works for the private sector. Okay, oh, that's but he cool. also but he also used to be an analyst for Riley. Do you want to guess uh, where he worked? 
before all this, before his uh, career in media and public relations. Okay, wait, w- hold on. Was it so? He's in the McDonald Laurier Institute now. Yes. Because uh, and also moonlights as a consultant for the Taiwanese government. Yes, and the private sector. So he's like a he's sort of like a like a like a sort of KMT propaganda officer. Um, yes. Okay, what did he do before he got into this? He was an analyst for CSIS. He worked at CSIS. Yes, that's yeah, exactly okay, correct. Fantastic. Yeah. So awesome. <laughs> so you really need, yeah. Yeah, we just you know, and, we, and it's just he's like yeah. Uh, we you no one can ever ask me that. If you ask me that, you're Russia or China or whatever. If you ask me about exactly. And I mean, like honestly, like the the way to see this isn't sort of discontinuous. Like you don't leave a country's intelligence services ever. Like once you yeah. work in it, you work in it forever. Um, you're in, you're in for life. Yeah, and like I don't know. It seems like our and you wonder why our media is sort of so servile to these people. Why it doesn't say, I don't know, ask the ask questions that might be like, hey, interested. How does how does your commentary on foreign policy that shapes people's opinions on foreign policy? How is that shaped by let's say? You know what it is? I think that for a long time, Americans were much more suspicious. And I think it's because of Kennedy is Americans yeah. were much more rightly suspicious of the CIA. I think Trump Absolutely. undid a lot of that because he made like he made like w- like liberals whose main thing would have been hating the CIA, love the CIA. But we never had anything like that in Canada where anything that CSIS would have done or like things that we talk about, about like um, the security state more generally, like disrupting communications and spying on like you know indigenous uh sort of protesters against pipelines or whatever is most sort of those of those cosseted like you know big city liberals who would have really really felt the kennedy assassination and felt some anger about that or whatever they don't fucking care about anything that the security state's actually doing in canada at all no absolutely not and that uh that is frustrating to uh that is frustrating to some people who uh want to push foreign policy agenda they want people to care they don't want them to uh, care and say that it's bad. They want them to care and say, our brave boys are doing a good job. Yeah, and you know what it is? It's the opposite of MI6. It was like never formally acknowledged to exist by the British government. Like it had, like there was a guy in the government whose job was, you know, poorly defined who was, you know, uh, M or whatever, right? Or whatever yeah. the real life version of M would have been. They do obviously now acknowledge um mi6 and it has an office building and all this but like yeah it, it wasn't ever acknowledged as even existing until 1994 right you know it yeah. but it, it's we it's, we we sort of just are incredibly proud about our um well you know it's it's a, this co- this coterie of people and i think you, you have to see it's the same thing in britain really is that the the bourgeois media and the state and all political parties in contention for it are just the same edifice. Yeah, absolutely. Like they, 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 you will never, you will never have a Globe and Mail journalist sort of sit down with, uh, um, uh, uh, with J. Cole and ask him, ask him, what did you do when you were in CSIS? Uh, what, what did you think that your goals were in CSIS? Did you ever do anything like this in CSIS? Do you think perhaps the fact that you're a, uh, an anal- a geopolitical analyst uh, for the uh, Taiwanese government and that you are a senior fellow at a think tank who's paid by the Taiwanese government is possibly a conflict of interest uh, mm-hmm. when we are interviewing you and you are trying to educate Canadians about Taiwan? Yeah, but I guess objective but, way. But like, if you think about it from the perspective of, of the journalist, they're just being like, well, yeah, China lies. 
And it's our job. The job of our intelligence agencies is to uncover the truth. And then it's the job of journalists to disseminate the truth. Like none of them are. If you if you told them all of this, it would be perfectly logically consistent to them because of their prior beliefs. Yeah, right. Exactly. None of that would none of that would be inconsistent. But I think you're you're right when you say that there is a subset of the sort of Canadian media journalism uh, nexus that is really really pissed off that more people aren't talking about CSIS and what we're yes. doing and what our ship movements are. Like as in the U.S., right? Like there's the they love their operators. They're always talking about the operators. They have the mission grill, and we don't have that in Canada. And it certainly makes a subset of these people fucking furious. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you know their jobs kind of depend on the, the public being uh, engaged and interested in this, even beyond ideology. Mm. And like with J. Michael Cole, like I th- we've identified guys like this before on on this show, but it's really interesting to me that. You know, we've sort of lasered in on a type of guy who leaves intelligence work, goes over to the part of the private sector that informs intelligence, Mm -hmm. and then spins a narrative that creates a scary vision of the world where it is absolutely necessary to pay people like J. Michael Cole to spin narratives. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, they're all, you know, they're all working friends together. They're they're all friends. They're all working together. The idea that any of these organizations are working against one another, except in maybe a professional wrestling sense, is yeah, facile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but you, you've you've talked about this for a while, actually. Sort of, you know, between the two of us, right? Is the this idea that they and, and there are sort of a few more examples of this, right? Of 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 this class of MLI person being essentially pretty desperate for. Not just support from the ongoing support from the security state, which they have unconditionally, but it isn't enough for them. They want a round of applause from the Canadian people. And the thing is, a lot of Canadian liberals would be happy to give it to them. It's just they we, we don't do a lot of stuff that excites these people either. Exactly. Yeah. They're also they're also kind of mad at the liberals, too. <laughs> so I think I kind of, you know, like detected the uh, patient zero of this um of this new type of more belligerent style in uh, in our national security experts and and the people who uh, go on our media to tell us uh, to inform us uh, about geopolitics and it's uh, it's it's from an article by Thomas Juno from two thousand lately of this parish right someone we someone we've spoken about before yeah that's right um, so he's a, yeah he's an associate professor at the University of uh, Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. Uh, he edited a book on uh, Canadian defense policy and theory and practice. Um, and he's interesting to me in that he presents as a liberal. Like mm-hmm. his main focus is Yemen. Uh, well, I mean, of course he presents as a liberal because like it's no longer the Eisenhower administration. You don't sell wars. By uh, by chest thumping and uh, and talking about you know beating the commies, you sell yeah, wars. This by... is a lesson that yeah. Marcus Kolga at the McDonald Laurier <laughs> Institute needs to learn. He needs to take a page out of Judo's book. Yeah, dial down the anti-communism, buddy. Yeah, you People don't... are asking about your grandparents. You don't. Yeah, you don't. That's how you sell wars to your grandparents or your great grandparents. That's how Eisenhower did it. It's how Nixon did it. But you have to try to if you're going to sell a war. You got to sell a war like Clinton. You got to sell a war like Obama. You got to say it's for every it's for their own good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so this is this is Thomas Chino's attempt at, at selling uh 
I won't go so far as to say a war, but let's say a more muscular Canadian uh, foreign (laughs) policy. So he says, Canada has benefited from the incredible luxury uh, of the last few decades. We've been able to make mistakes in major foreign policy and national security policy decisions. Agree. I wonder who's in charge of foreign policy then. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wonder if we've done multiple episodes on this person. Uh, Or neglect these matters and suffer little to no cost. Mm-hmm. Most other countries do not have this luck. When they make a bad choice, they suffer negative consequences. But this is changing. In the coming years, Canada yep, will increase. It sure did change. <laughs> when did you say this was written? Oh nine? No, two thousand and twenty, buddy. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Canada will increasingly, and here comes here comes the belligerent uh, flashlight under the chin, uh, will increasingly have to pay a price if we do not throw away our dilettante approach. Yeah, great. Absolutely. Uh, what? How would the last war, remind me, the last war we got involved in, how did that one go? Not well. Did was And the problem was that we were too dilettantish, right? We were trying to do too much when we should have focused on doing one thing very well. Yeah, what was the last good military engagement we got involved in? Was it was, uh, Libya? Um, that worked out good. I don't think that one worked out. Uh, um, our ongoing support for the Saudis, right, giving them tanks to use in Yemen. Uh, uh, Ukraine, Ukraine is an economically stable and uh, prosperous country. Great place to live now, thanks to uh, thanks to our boys. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, I I think I think he may be. Uh, I think that our boy may be a hammer, and to him, everything looks like a nail. Yes. So you know, he says the problem, of course, is that Canada's highly permissive security environment is deteriorating. It will not collapse overnight, but the convergence of multiple trends means that over the next few years, the country will not be able to avoid the price, uh, not be able to avoid paying the price of its uh, foreign policy decisions anymore. Mm-hmm. So, and then the tell comes here. Okay. So, you know, what, what, are, what are the trends that are, that are worrying Mr. Janot? Well, these trends, according to him, are, quote, well known, and they have been affecting Canada already. They include... An increasingly ambitious and aggressive China, a revanchist and emboldened Russia, the spread of new technologies that hostile actors are increasingly adept at exploiting. The threat. Don't of we talk about Islamist how we need to become extremism. more adept at deploying technologies offensively against others? Didn't we literally talk about how we need to be fighting a cyber war? Didn't we talk about that? Con- these same people. Yes. So so he's dragging it. He's dragging all the universal monsters out. You got the Dracula. You got the Frankenstein. You got the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's the fucking monster mash uh, up in here. He even adds um, he adds uh, right wing domestic extremism and uh, climate change and pandemics. That's because this is Thomas, you know, right? You have to like if he, he knows his audience, he knows what he's trying to do. He knows that he's trying to appeal to a globe and mail reader. Well, get this, buddy. So what what, uh, what single force do you think is compounding all of these things? What's the glue that's holding all this together? Ooh. Okay, okay. Hold on, hold on. Is the glue something like social media or populism? Or is it no. our, our well, reticence? It's close. You're close. You're okay. close. Missed. More okay. narrowly defined uh, uh, Disinformation. version of populism. No, it is the unpredictable consequences of Trumpism. Oh, of course. The unpredictable consequences of Trumpism, such as what, like the way that the Soviet Union was sort of, you know, dismantled and privatized, this <laughs> creating a very, un, un, a very unstable state. Is that That's one right. of the is that one of the consequences of Trumpism? 
That's right. Uh, no, well, look, according, I mean, and again, this is written in 2020. According to him, uh, those consequences are the eclectic and inept mix of protectionism, aggressiveness, uh, unilateralism, and disdain for liberal norms. I mean, the main things that Trump did on the on the world stage that were disdainful of liberal norms were like, I mean, look from like a from like a like an intergovernmental cooperation perspective, like getting out of the Paris Agreement, which was pretty bad. But like, I don't know, he didn't do what a lot of um, liberal internet liberal internationalist types have been dying to do and invade Iran. So I don't know what the fuck Thomas Junot is talking about. I don't either. I mean, he seems to think that that this Trump, like what he's calling Trumpism, uh, exacerbates domestic fault lines and makes it impossible for us to do things like um, send an iron dome uh, in an, in like a big uh, build it yourself box over to Riga. Well, know? I mean, you know what? I mean, you know what is really going on here, right? It's that the, these guys' jobs is to sell war, and it's to yes. sell war to Canadians. And if you feel like the wind in Canada. And if you feel like the wind of the likely voter in Canada is blowing the, the a way that wants to repudiate Trump, you say, you know how do you repudiate, repudiate Trump? You fight a war, but you need to care about it. And I think that's what yes. unites the sort of that's why Thomas Junot is the patient zero of this thing, because he's desperate for he is absolutely desperate for you to wake up and just be scared to fucking death of absolutely. the various boogeymen. Uh, that you know the uh, sort of the, the the mini blob of Canadian foreign policy establishment actors whose main thing appears to be like imitating the big blob <laughs> as you yeah. to be scared of whatever they want you to be scared of. And and these guys have been wanting you to be scared for the last you know half decade or more. The only difference now is that they're realizing that maybe the public doesn't care, so they're shining the flashlight under their face and they're crying at the same time. You know, they're making the rage face. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> they're all they're all the cereal guy. Yes. You know, it's a, yeah. they're eating cereal and they're saying, um, you know, that uh, the legitimate government of China is in Taiwan. Uh, and then, you know, I don't know, China like flies an airplane, like like flies one plane from one city in China to another city in China. And they spit out the cereal. Exactly. <sighs> exactly. So, you know, like. Our friends at the McDonald Laurier Institute are are working, also working hard to you know, make sure that we don't forget to be very afraid and or angry and or proud, depending on whatever uh, particular geopolitical situation they're pushing. Um, and they're they're resorting to like increasingly kind of pathetic uh, attempts, which is uh, you know they're producing a podcast called I'm sorry, Riley, uh, it's called Across it's called the, the Pond. <laughs> It's called Across the Pond. Wait, wait, hold on. Are you saying that like, I don't know, it's like some, is it, is it Canada's, oh, is it Ariel Pink talking to like, uh, uh, like a, like a James Ball or something? <laughs> is, it, is it, oh no, it's, is it, is it, uh, is it Canada's most right-wing musician talking to the, um, uh, uh, one of the hosts of the Romaniacs? Yeah, it's uh, it's the guy from Death from Above 1979 who used to hang out with Gavin McInnes talking to a very old racist Swedish man who's on the Atlantic Council. <laughs> it's just talking to the mayor of Riga of, of Riga in Latvia who started to use a, uh, a an armored personnel carrier to crush uh, illegally parked cars. <laughs> yes, Th- that's real. Someone th- he is actually doing that. There's a YouTube video of him doing it. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
So yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, I guess, in conclusion on uh, on this stuff, like I think it's very important now more than ever. If you see, if you if you happen upon an article that is that is talking, trying to tell you something about Taiwan or uh, you know Latvia's border security issues, just check check the headline, check who wrote it, check who's quoted. If you see a if you see a J. Michael Cole in there, mm-hmm. just check it out. Yeah, don't need to read it. Not important because that man is being paid to tell you those things. But also, like even if even otherwise, right? You just there it, it seems like the 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 chain is just unbroken between um the chain is completely unbroken right between all of these people who all want to be friends who are all in the little party together of pretending that Canada's a real country with a foreign policy and that it matters and all they want is to form a broad democratic consensus uh or at least enough of one right that there can be some mandate for us to uh you know, maybe be be like some important partner in a doomed assault on China. Yes, yes, yeah. And I mean, none of these people are going to bring up the fact that uh, the Wall Street Journal back on October seventh uh, ran with a story that the United States has been, uh, you know, uh, has had special forces secretly stationed in Taiwan and they've been uh, training the Chinese military. That's you're not going to hear that here. No, of course not. Uh, um, but it's I mean, it kind of it kind of reminds me of of like your analysis of uh, Tyler Brule world mm-hmm. in that um, somehow like some unholy alliance of our intelligence services, uh, these people who make money doing analysis and pushing narratives and our media have created a the frictionless world that Tyler Brule would have liked to have lived in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God. yeah, well, they want it to be frictionless because they want to nuke all of the uh, promontories off the land. Smooth those tubes out. Oh man! Well, I've I've got I've got a little something for us as well, um, right? Uh, again, I think this could also be filed under. This is a bit of a media studies episode, I think, which is just looking at power relationships in the opinions that get just uncritically put out by like the CBC or the Globe and Mail or whatever. Um, yeah. And there, you you know this uh, this article I'm about to talk about, right? Yes. Uh, it was published by uh, the Globe and Mail uh, it, by this uh, this guy called Ashley Nunez, uh, who works at an organization called the R Street Institute. And of course, and the article is entitled "The Problem with the Quote Right to Disconnect from Work." <laughs> I'm intrigued. Yeah. Uh, well, you have to be legally. You can't turn off your phone and stop being intrigued. That's right. <laughs> um, I'm thinking about the metaverse again. I can't kill myself until I read this Ashley Nunez article. Yeah, yeah you have to read the Ashley Nunez article in order to uh, fall asleep in the metaverse. Or if yeah. you want to wear a, um, if you want to wear this uh, this dope hat, I'm afraid that's going to be an Ashley Nunez article uh, as the price of admission. Uh, so uh, uh, Ashley Nunez writes in the Globe and Mail, and I'll tell you about what the R Street. Uh, uh, Institute is in a moment. As if leadership is, as the author Tom Smith wrote, quote, the ability to facilitate movement in the needed direction and have people feel good about it. Uh, I don't know who Tom Smith is. I don't know if I should know. Uh, uh, author. Uh, oh, he's oh he's a business motivation author. Oh, cool. Yeah, great. God, Ashley Nunez fucking seems like he sucks. Um, uh, <laughs> that could spell trouble for leaders in Ontario because apparently the province's workers don't feel so good about the direction in which they've been moving. The reason? 
C-suite execs remain tone deaf to the needs of the working class. That's All right. probably true. Sounds fine. The wants and, av- and aspirations of average Ontarians exhausted by the pandemic that has blurred the line between work and home. Fair enough. Yep. And then he could have ended the article there. But. Well, he's got a word count. To- I assume the rest of it's going to go in the direction we're expecting. He's just got a word count to fill. Yeah, exactly. And so last week, Premier Doug Ford's government unveiled plans that would give workers the, quote, right to disconnect. The law would- that would require that executives at companies of 25 or more develop policies for clearly delineating work from the rest of one's life. Good. Fine. Yeah. Um, Great. Yeah. So this is about like not having to answer emails when you're at home or not having to take calls when you're at home. Um, the idea isn't new. Two decades ago, France's Supreme Court ruled that employees were under no obligation to accept working from home or to bring their working tools or files home. Years later, the French politicians codified that, uh, that sentiment into law. Um, Interfering on uh, mistress time. Yeah. Well, I mean, also like, you know, if you... That's one of the reasons why I think as as I've sort of stopped being a as I stop being a child as I put aside childish things um, the most childish thing of all that I put aside was this idea that the French are uh, you know lazy and shiftless and uh, cowardly because if you tell them <laughs> that they can't get at least a bit drunk at lunch they will turn the country upside down heads are gonna roll yeah absolutely like they're absolutely not like that they're great. Um, so did the Italians, the Irish, the Hispanics, and the Slovaks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There may be virtue in work, this kind of legislation signaled, but there's also virtue in rest. Now, uh, and it's, Ontario's political establishment clearly agrees. Fine. Um, so I'm going to now tell you a little bit about what the R Street Institute is so we can see if we can predict what the rest of this article is going to say. Right? This okay. idea where someone has just looked at the idea that there might possibly be virtue in not doing spreadsheets a little bit, taking some time in your day to see your family, to eat a meal, to experience dignity, or to just not have your back be slowly twisted into a hunch by like, you know, staring at spreadsheets if you're lucky, or doing like digital piecework or answering phones at a call center or whatever, or doing this other sort of devalued low paid uh, electronic remote work if you're not right right the r street institute used to be called the heartland institute <laughs> oh boy <laughs> okay so i'm assuming that they're kind of like they're they're into like big fans uh, of the show heartland yeah on cbc like a blend of like ic80 synthesizers but also like uh working class based they're kind of like they're they're like the war on drugs right yeah of course uh so look they Heartland Institute. The Heartland Institute, its main thing was uh, uh, climate skepticism, uh, and they were started in like 2012. They were 2012, it, it, like being sort of basically saying Ted Kaczynski, Charles Manson, and Osama bin Laden all believe in global warming. So it's got to be a hoax. Okay. Because when you said climate skepticism, I thought you meant they were like going outside, you know, licking their finger a little bit putting it up out in the air and being like, this is not good. seems bad. we yeah. got to do something. About I, I, what, just, I, I, or just going so far as to be like, it's about 20 degrees, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say for sure. Where, maybe bring a long sleeve t-shirt for later if it gets dark and a little cold. In that way, I'm also a climate skeptic. Yeah. <laughs> You'd love to bring a long sleeve tea. Yeah, um, just to be safe. Yeah, of course. Um, so basically, right, like they're... It's it's like it's just part of this um, 
big blob of uh, sort of not not foreign policy blob, although uh, uh, James Comey and James Baker were both um, involved in, uh, in 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 the in the organization and in, in the R Street Institute before it became after it was the Heartland Institute, right? It sort of shut yeah. down, and then all the people who worked at the Heartland Institute reformed to something else, because of course the Heartland Institute became so associated with climate change denial. <laughs> um and that uh, damn they did too good of a job yeah and so these guys spun off we're like we have identical politics in every way but we're not associated with climate change denial um and uh uh and and so yeah basically they they just changed their name and now like quite safely you know fucking uh 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 like lots of um Lot, lot. They're still very easy for big, for you know, big corpus to support, more or less, right? Yeah. So, uh, so our, it's, it's all the same fucking people, um, which is great. And so, and this also, it's an American, it's an American think tank that's like, you know what? Who has too much free time? Ontarians, if they're allowed to turn <laughs> off their smartphones when they get home from work, we, yes. an American conservative group, needs to make sure that they're protected. Um, he says, uh. That this bill leaves behind actual workers. Now, disconnecting from work is good, and toiling all day from sunrise to sunset may seem impressive, but it's hardly beneficial. Tending to a nonstop flurry of email, back to back Zoom calls, and rapid fire text requests has been shown to hinder, not help productivity. Okay, fine. Here's the turn. Because there are, the, the, the turn in this, in this article comes very late in the article, it comes like sort of two thirds of the way in. It says, Yet while there's value in disconnecting from work, there's also value in working. Okay. Perfectly argued. So we can't ever give anyone the right to disconnect. <laughs> yeah. Because there might uh, be value in working. Case closed, I, I guess. Yeah. Motivated workers. I, wonder, I just kind of wonder if, I, I wonder what the over-under on uh, Ashley Nunez ever having toiled uh, day and night is. Oh, well, I'll tell you, Ashley Nunez uh, actually toiled very hard to be a research fellow at uh, Harvard, uh, which is absolutely somewhere you have to toil very hard to do. To work, for sure. A lot of toil goes into working at Harvard. Working, working my fingers into the, working my fingers the bone. Yeah. Uh, says, motivated workers take pride in crafting unique products, building brands people love, and ensure, that's how you know this motherfucker has never done anything. Yes. No one has ever taken pride in building a brand people love, and if you have, then you're a fucking stupid person or a total sociopath. Building brands, people. I love my job, getting people to connect more with Nexium uh, stomach control tablets. I want people to feel like the Nexium is their friend. I, my wife divorced me. Uh, I see my children once every two months, but I've taught Canada to love old Dutch corn twisties. And ensuring it, it. <laughs> ensuring that the service post purchase is flawless. Taking all these boxes demands innovation and that requires creativity. What a fucking bullshit concept creativity is, honestly. Yes. Like like the the idea that you need to apply the sort of the spark of your sort of soul, your motive power, whatever you want to call it, that you need to invent something that will make people more sort of that will make people feel more personally connected to old Dutch corn twisties. Or that you're going to like do this V lookup real good is nonsense. Um, It warrants not just coming up with ideas, but in an increasingly competitive global market, producing transformative ones. 
Uh, what do you do? What does has Ashley Nunez ever come up with a transformative idea? No, he's just a fan of them. He's just a cheerleader for transformative ideas. He like looks at an Amazon Alexa and claps like a train seal. It's one thing about me. I'm I'm a big fan of transformative ideas uh, and creativity. Uh, the problem is that they aren't generated on command and they can't be served up at a moment's notice. Nor can they always be delivered between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. We have oh our. My God, is he going to do the 10,000 hours of practice thing? Well, he says. Here? He says we have our best ideas in unexpected places at unexpected times, which is why your boss needs to have a shower cam for you. Exactly. Uh, excelling in today's economy demands short bursts of intensive thought, followed by seemingly unproductive, if necessary, lulls. So wait, like, in, in, he, right, he's the, the argument here, right? Is that the eight, the long touted eight hour workday has rightly been faulted for failing rather than supporting workers because setting hard limits on work hours can prevent workers from not only being productive when the moment best strikes an individual, but also from taking the breaks they need to stay healthy. And if you're Ashley Nunez, then what you, it's very important that you believe, right? Because you wouldn't be Ashley Nunez if you didn't believe this, is that the mm-hmm. eight hour workday is a naturally occurring thing. It sprang fully formed, right? For no reason at all. Yeah. It was always like that. It was like that in Roman times. Uh, it was like that around the world. The Mayans did it. Uh, if, there were, if there was life on Mars, like those single-celled organisms might have had an eight-hour workday, probably. Um, That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, are you you're going to be sitting on a rock in sub-zero temperatures, uh, converting hydrocarbon into the energy you need to live and reproduce? No, not for eight hours a day. Or One of the reasons that you can know that this is complete horseshit is that the twelve-hour workday, you could say the same thing. Yes. You know, employees work from eight to eight, but what if they have a good idea at eleven? I see what he's getting at here. He's pitching the metaverse where you can't sleep unless you read his article. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know, what if you always had a little thing on so that you were when you were playing Wii Bowling with your friend who's paid like, you know, 30 Ether to get an Iron Man costume that you could also be answering work emails through a Neuralink. Because <laughs> like these people's dreams of like tr- transformation and technology and all that stuff, it all just comes down to answering email. Uh, but then that's, and that's the thing. That's even in their vision of it, right? Because in reality, all of this, all of anything that's pitched at the middle classes or like these creative, transformative, sort of high tech, high status jobs, all of the things that are pitched at making those things more enabled, always, without exception, end up being used to intensify the exploitation of the worst off and the lowest paid. But you have to Absolutely. always remember that Uber's initial pitch was to middle-class people who had an extra car and maybe a little bit of extra time on like a Sunday. And if you felt like having a drive and meeting your neighbors, then you could switch on the app and, hey, presto, you've spent your Sunday at lazy Sunday afternoon meeting your neighbors and people in the city and all this other stuff. And you've got like 70 bucks to show for it. That's how it was pitched for a long fucking time. Yeah, Airbnb, same thing. Which is, I have so an extra. You've ex- got a spare room in your house and you want to meet uh, the Spanish couple that's coming to Montreal for the first time. Yeah. It, it, it was connections. It was a great way to swing. You put a fishbowl and you see if someone puts their keys in it. <laughs> exactly. Right? If it's one couple coming to visit you, you're going to have two sets of keys. There's a 50% chance of swinging. Um, right. But it, it's. And, and so when he, whenever he talks about, oh, workers are in transform- solving transformative problems need to have burst of energy, what he's actually talking about is if you work as like 
an HR business partner or you're uh, a, a, a you're in like a telemarketing or customer service or whatever, then you shouldn't be able to stop working. You shouldn't have hours, right? Because the That's right. these bill these like legislation around limiting work tends to acknowledge that your boss has more power over you. And so the best way to avoid them, you know, fucking you over is to have hard laws around it. Because the idea that this is a free contract between two people, again, is just the kind of idiocy that Ashley Nunez needs to believe or else someone else would have written this exact column and we'd be talking about them, you know? Exactly. It's I mean, I, I worked telemarketing for about two years in Montreal and I can't tell you the, you know, I worked an eight hour, eight hour shift. Sometimes I do overtime if I needed to make extra money. Um, but I'd say 50% of the time on the Metro ride to work, I was, my mindset was the same as a World War One soldier facing the Battle of the Somme, <laughs> where, where I'd be like, I don't really need this toe, you know? Or I, I could probably get by with one eye. <laughs> just, just critically injuring myself on the subway and being like, sorry, guys, can't, can't yeah. do it. So I've, I've, got, uh, I've, got my fin- I've got my finger blown off. Looks like I'm going to have to get on sick pay. And, but yeah, so it's like, I don't know, th- this has just been reprinted in like globe debates or whatever, right? And yeah, it's okay. Well, these are supposed to be, you know, controversial or whatever. But the problem is like by just that the, the institutions like the Globe and Mail, right? It's just, you know, just so long as you have an institute and you have a name, and especially if you're American, they will just allow you to write any old shit. And the Absolutely. function of that, the function of that is much the same as the function of the MLI, which is that the, because these things are institutes, they're organizations, they're reified. They're not just some guy. Yeah. Then it almost launders it into, well, here's a thought. And then that thought is just imminently everywhere. And you can never really get it, rid it of can, it. It gives it a veneer of respectability and, and tells you that you should consider it. And, and like in the case of the Nunez article, this is... Obviously, you know, this is not an article that's meant to convince workers to give up uh, their very, uh, their very valuable and constantly shrinking amount of like personal autonomy in the form of free time. It's directed at the people who are going to take that time away from workers yeah, and convince them that it's okay to do that. That's its purpose. And, and I think we, we have to accept, right, that there is never like... Again, if the Globe and Mail took another position, then the Globe and Mail would be about as popular in Canada as, I don't know, uh, Passage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's not about complaining, I wish the Globe and Mail wrote something else. It's about understanding why you can't trust the Globe and Mail, why the Globe and Mail is as much your opponent as, as, as the R Street Institute, as the National Security Infrastructure, as that all of yes. these things together exist for a reason. If they didn't do these things, then someone else called something else would do the same thing. Because the, exactly. uh, every article we talk about wasn't really written by, a, or was only incidentally written by a person. It was produced by power. It was produced by the force, the arrange, arrangement and, uh, 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 and, and interests of power. You know, it's Ashley Nunez, it is Ashley Nunez is the least important part of the Ashley Nunez article. You know, yeah. J. Cole is the least important part of any of the J. Cole articles. Because it's not that these people are wrong. These people are incidental, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, the Globe and Mail is the final stop on this information packet's journey to your boss. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And right, I'm even looking at another another thing here, right? The Globe and Mail, another other headline. Just this, just this just came up, and as I was reading this this article, working from home for the long term isn't beneficial. CIBC CEO says, and okay, yeah. And then the the argument is that um, right now you see a view emerging that you can't do ev- that you can do everything from home, but you can't build a company in a company culture that's cohesive. Just working from home, uh, said the CEO um, Victor Dodig uh, to an online audience. Seems like somebody wants to justify paying rent on all those big, big buildings downtown. He says, this is something that we need to recognize as we go forward and make sure we don't create two classes of citizens, said the bank CEO. (laughs) Those who always have to be on the front lines and those who get a choice. So we're going to take away the choice of the people who had the choice. Yeah, that's right. We're going to do to make everyone. We got to make it fair. Yeah, we can't have two classes of citizens. So we have to take away the people who've gotten a slight reprieve from the misery, says bank CEO. Um, yes. And then the thing is, he says the pharmacy workers, hospital workers, grocery store workers, the people collecting our garbage, they always had to be on the front lines, said the bank CEO, as well as our banking employees who had to be in our banking centers and working in vaults and making sure the bank moves forward every day, said the bank CEO. So their lives haven't changed, said the bank CEO. Um, Who's going to take the beans from the big basket of beans and put it in the smaller baskets? Yeah, look, look we need to keep the beans going. And... And so, like, if you look through this this article, do you think anyone else is quoted? Um, I'm going to say probably not. Do you think? <laughs> I it's, mean, it's, do we need anyone else? We got a bank CEO here talking. I yeah. mean, those guys are, knows what he's talking about. Like, it's like, yeah, you've already got the big guy. What do you want to get someone more junior? Yeah, exactly. How do you care? <laughs> you've already got the big guy. You know, it, it's it's it is. I I like when I was sort of younger and before I was paying attention to this kind of thing. You just like you you stop seeing sort of just exactly how uh, sort of pathetic the Canadian media is. Um, but my, it is uniquely uh, uh, sort of prostate. Prostate. Uh, prostate? It is uniquely prostrate, excuse it's me. Uniquely prostate. It's very prostate. <laughs> it's ass. <laughs> All right. Anyway, but that, look, that's my... Um, that's my that's 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 my Globe and Mail uh, uh, a little little review for the day. Just a a, a wretched paper uh, of that's very entertaining for me, but uh, it is just uh, depressing to read. I'm I'm here in Toronto. Do you want me to do you want me to go down there? Uh, you can to you le- t- deliver a message. Yeah, <laughs> just could you tell them to um you know what you, they, I'd like them to do? I would like them to be more like City TV. Yeah. But the 80s city TV. Yeah, be more like 80s city TV. Let's have the Globe and Mail do baby blue movies. That's right. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that's about time for us today. Uh, we've been the Bottleman, and we're going to be on the bonus episode in a couple of days. Sorry about uh, last week's bonus episode being late. Uh, Dan's recording an album, uh, and I am moving both my studio and my house. Uh, but we do hope that you enjoyed what will, by the time this is out, have been out already. I love podcast time dilation. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll see you on the bonus episode in a couple of days. Don't forget, it's seven Canadian dollars a month for two episodes every week. You can't afford not to. Anyway, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.